Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, bringing you an expanding library of education with even more ways to sharpen your trading skills. Access new online courses, insightful webcasts, articles, engaging videos, and more, all curated just for traders. Plus, guided learning paths with content designed to fit your unique interests. No sifting to find exactly what you need so you can spend your time learning to trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com earnings right now. NetSuite.com earnings. Bloomberg is now on your dashboard. With Apple CarPlay and Android Auto, it gives you access to every Bloomberg podcast, live audio feeds from Bloomberg Radio, print stories from Bloomberg News in audio form, and the latest headlines at the click of a button with Bloomberg News Now. It's free with the latest version of the Bloomberg Business app. That's the Bloomberg Business app. Get it on your phone in the Apple App Store or on Google Play. Just download the app, connect your phone to your car, and get started. And it's all presented by our sponsor, Interactive Brokers. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. An exclusive with James Gorman, the executive chairman of Morgan Stanley, recently stepped down from his post as CEO. And this is the first interview in your new role as executive chairman. What's your most urgent priority? Well, it was obviously to come and do this interview with you is my first priority. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's to support Ted. And uh, he's a terrific guy, will be a great CEO. Um, and my job really is to help him as best as I can, uh, but stay out of the road. So uh, that's, that's really my priority. It's interesting. I've heard you used to write a uh, handwrite, a checklist of priorities at the start of every year. If you think about how you change gears into executive chairman, what does that checklist this year look like? It, I didn't write it this year. Uh, I did that when I was CEO for 14 years, and it gave me a framework for focusing on a few big things that matter. Because in these jobs, um, there are thousands, literally thousands of issues that come at you, and you can easily lose sight of the stuff that actually matters, which is a few big things. So every year, I would tee up on the first day I came into the office, which was yesterday, I came in, um, and write down the list of 10 things. And you know, one of them uh, was always no new mistakes, which I defined as things that cost us more than half a billion of capital. Um, sometimes they were personal, like stay fit or get fit, or uh, sometimes they were about development and leadership with our top team. But no, different jobs, so different. You've got, you've got to switch. So that's what I've done. You know, I'm, I'm glad you brought up mistakes because mm -hmm. to the extent that we learn from life's challenges, I'm curious about your single moment. What is the biggest mistake you ever thought you've made at Morgan Stanley? You know, this is an exit interview. It's the <laughs> chance to look back at the last decade or so. You know, I, it might sound immodest, I don't think we made a lot of big mistakes. I mean, the, um, if, if you look at the major things that we did, whether they were the deals, the Smith Barney, E-Trade, Eaton Vance, um, Succession, which is critical, 
navigating through COVID. You know, we got, we got frankly, most of the big stuff right. I wish we hadn't sold Van Campen when we sold it to uh, Marty Flanagan and Invesco. So that was something I think it took a little too long to get the full team that I wanted in place in the right jobs. Um, but, the, you know, you can't do these jobs and not make mistakes. When I see a mistake, I embrace it. You know, it's like Kipling. You're, you're those, those travellers of success and failure, you've got to embrace them both. Because if you're not making mistakes, the chances are you're not doing enough. So I never see a mistake as a negative. I just see it as something you learn from and move forward. You know, it's interesting. You're standing on top of a mountain now. You've had a tremendous amount of success at Morgan Stanley, but those first couple of years were rocky. Were you ever worried in those first few years you'd be ousted before you can enact a turnaround? No. <laughs> you know, I just thought, listen, what I felt back then, um, we had to act and we had to act aggressively. And I knew that whatever we chose to do, there would be critics. That didn't bother me one little bit because we we're in trouble as it was. So my job was to do something about it, not listen to the critics of what we can't do, but figure out what we can do. So I was highly confident that we'd make choices and I thought they'd pay off. I thought the rebalancing of the business model was the right choice. So I, didn't, I just didn't listen to the critics. It's funny, you kind of got Morgan Stanley out rock bottom, if you will, but a lot of investors think Ted Pick's job is even harder because he is on a high note. What do you think Ted's biggest challenge is going to be? Oh, I don't, th I don't think it's harder or easier. They're just different. You go through different cycles. I mean, the Morgan Stanley I've had for the last five years is very different from the first five or the middle, middle four. Um, you know, for Ted, he's got one of the biggest and, and most successful companies in the world, a uh, phenomenal brand. He's a great culture carrier, so I'm sure the culture will stay in track. The real choices will be strategic. So when opportunities come to move left or move right, how do you do that? How aggressively do, do you do it and when do you do it? So that's, they're really the choices. And in the first year while I'm here, I'll obviously um, share with him whatever you know, uh, views I have on stuff if he wants that. But in the later years, he'll have his team working with him on that. So I'm, I'm confident about that. We'll talk more about strategy in a second, but another thing, as you transition to executive chairman, you have roles mm -hmm. now outside of the bank. Mm -hmm. uh, and succession is arguably one of the most important things you could do as a manager, and a big new responsibility for you is serving on the board of Disney, ironically, where succession has been one of the biggest issues. How does Disney live past Bob Iger? Well, firstly, I mean, Bob Iger's a phenomenal executive. I mean, he is... Uh, iconic for a reason. He's led that company uh, through so many cycles and uh, really is a gifted leader. So it's a great pleasure to work with him, but it's not for me to judge Disney's future. I haven't joined the board yet. I'm starting, uh, I think, February 4th or February 2nd, I'm sure, early February. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. I, I like uh, dealing with complex situations. Uh, the changes going on in that industry are profound and there are choices to be made. So that to me is very interesting. And obviously, given the experience I've had leading succession with our board here, with Dennis Nally, the head of our comp committee, and Tom Gloser, the head uh, lead director, um, you know, hopefully I can add something to the succession committee that I'll be joining. What about uh, pressing challenges outside of succession at Disney? Do you think that there's anything that could be immediately addressed as they contend with activists? Well, you know, there are, there are always, we had, we've had, uh, how many activists do we have here? We had at least two, and I think they each had two bites at the apple. Um, so no, that, that is not what the focus should be on. The focus should be on strategic choices companies make. But again, I haven't joined the board, so I can't, I can't talk about a company I'm not even 
uh, an insider on. That wouldn't be fair to the team. More on strategic decisions at Morgan Stanley. One massive question. You've built this massive wealth management business, mostly in the United States. You have talked previously about the idea of Morgan Stanley inter internationally expanding more. Do you think Morgan Stanley, though, can be a giant international wealth manager? Oh, sure. There are a lot of wealthy people in this world. I think population just tipped $8 billion and... Um, uh, you know, I, I've just come back from a long trip through Asia, through uh, Thailand, Singapore, Hong Kong, um, and I was in Europe uh, last week. I've been all over. The, there are plenty of pockets of opportunity. So it's a question of, of where, you, where you pick your shots. I mean, where you pick your spots. There are, there are endless opportunities. And I think our Asia business, we have a wealth business in Asia. It's small-ish, uh, but growing very fast. Um, obviously, that's a focus. Japan, I think, with our partner MUFG is a tremendous focus that I suspect Ted and the team will do even more with, which he's already started doing on the trading side. Um, so there are endless opportunities. I'm, I'm not worried about what that. What are the biggest challenges with China in particular, given the rising geopolitical mm -hmm. tensions and the state of the economy there? Well, China has, you know, China has some fundamental challenges. First and foremost is demographics. Um, the one-child policy guaranteed the population's going to shrink. And right when you need more productive working people coming through to support the older generation, uh, they've got fewer of them and they don't have good immigration. So I think China has some profound challenges on demographics. It has profound challenges in terms of building a consumption economy. Um, you know, there's still an export savings-driven economy. So, I, but on the other hand, China's 1.4 billion people. Uh, second largest economy in the world uh, and gross domestic product. It's, it's a key factor in global economic health. So beyond Asia expansion, if you think about the wealth management space, even in the U.S., there's another thing that's happening that a lot of financial advisors are thinking about in particular, and that is the approval, actually, or the lack thereof, of a Bitcoin spot ETF in the United States. When you think about what wealthy clients invest in, when you think about the future of wealth management, do you think Bitcoin is a suitable investment? I've, I've never been, um, you know, I've, I've never really understood the value of Bitcoin as a form of stored value. Um, others have, and others have made a lot of money on it. I joked once, I wish I bought it at $60, and I'm glad I didn't buy it at $60,000. It's clearly speculative. I think it should play for wealthy people a very small role in their financial uh, fabric because it's so speculative, it's so volatile, and again, it's going through enormous regulatory change and industry disruption, as we've seen with some classic failures of late. So, listen, Bitcoin's not going away. It's not a fad. Um, I just don't think it's a core investment. I think it's a, a speculative asset of which there are plenty of choices. Speaking of regulation, you've been very vocal about the new regulations being made in the United States about bank capital, sure. about operational risk. Do you believe the rules are likely to change before implementation based on your recent discussions with regulators? And what do you think they will look like at the end? Oh, they'll definitely change. I mean, they put out an extended comment period, which got extended further. Uh, there have been thousands of comments put into the various regulatory bodies uh, led by the Fed. Um, it was it was a proposal that I would say uh, was extremely aggressive and set a marker. Um, it will not go through in that form. If it did, 
uh, I think it would have very, very negative consequences for corporate lending across this country, which is not what you want. It's not going to help the economy grow. Well, you've also spoken about the Treasury market potential impacts from these regulations. Sure. We've already seen stresses of late in the Treasury market. Do you have fears that those stresses will be exacerbated? I can't tell until I see the actual rules, but all I know is what was put out is highly, highly, highly unlikely to be what is ultimately regulated. Now, investors don't necessarily see that or agree with it, but in my experience, I've been in this a long time. I was on the Fed board for six years in New York. I chaired the FAC in Washington. Um, I think this is a highly aggressive proposal that will be materially wound back when it finally becomes law or regulation. Now, there has been tighter capital rules proposed under the Biden administration. There's also been a lot of regulatory actions taken against banks. If the Republicans take the White House in 2024, uh, whether it's Donald Trump or another contender, do you expect that this tighter regulatory environment will just fully unwind? It's too, it's too hard to project. I, you know, I think we're in, you know, we, you, you see pendulum swing and we swung to lighter regulation to I think an excessive proposal, I think it'll swing back. So it's heading back to more balanced regulation. And that's where it should be. I'm, I'm all about balance. I the banking system should not be deregulated. That would be a nightmare. On the other hand, if you overregulate and you require capital standards that are so high that banks are uninvestable, they can't grow. That doesn't serve communities well. You need prosperous, thriving banks to provide lending products for small businesses and consumers. You know, to the extent we're less than a year away, from a spate of bank failures to the extent that there are still fragilities in the financial system, what are they? I don't think there are a spate of failures, honestly. I think there were three banks that got it wrong. Um, I've said that publicly. They, they made choices that were the wrong choices. Wasn't complicated. They got washed up and, and cleaned up and folded into other banks and you move on. This wasn't, people kept telling me we're having a banking crisis. I said, no, we're not. We had a crisis among three banks. It was a crisis for their shareholders and their employees. It's not a crisis for the market. The core banking system is in, in rude good health, to use a British expression. Well, you know, it's not just the banking system. If you think about the hedge fund industry, regulators are also very concerned about some fragilities there. It wasn't too long ago that Morgan Stanley lost almost a billion dollars in the wake of the collapse of Arkegos. Do you think that there needs to be more safeguards on the non-bank system? I mean, that's, it's, honestly, it's, there's, there's too many participants in the non-bank system to say yes or no. You'd have to go subset by subset. Are we talking about payments? Are we talking about uh, private credit? Are we to, you know, go, th go through each of the pieces of it. But um, there are always risks when you're dealing with leverage in a financial system. But if you don't have leverage, you don't have lending. So it's a balance. Again, I'm always back to there is a balanced solution to most of these debates, and you can find it with thoughtful discussion with regulators. Speaking of leverage, the cost of leverage is higher today than it was a couple of years ago. Where do you think interest rates go headed into the end of the year, and what do you think the market starts to look like through 2024? They go down. <laughs> as simple as that? Yeah. How far down? I've got no idea. I mean, I thought that it's unlikely the Fed would cut rates this year, but inflation has moved down pretty materially quickly, that it's now become more likely. So first half of the year, I suspect nothing. Back half of the year, they could easily move a couple of, they could move a couple of times. But, but the, they... the key point is, we started this journey mm -hmm. with inflation at 10%, rates at zero, unemployment at 3.5%. And my objective was to get us to 4, 4, and 4. 4% inflation, 4% rates, 4% unemployment. We're about 3% inflation, we're 5%, 5.5% in rates, and we're about 35 in unemployment. 
So rates will come down. Do you think the economy is in an all clear when it looks like a, a soft landing versus a hard landing? Do you think that the economy will survive this year in good shape? The economy is fine. I mean, there's, there's this obsession with the R word, recession. I mean, you have recessions. They come and go when you get imbalances between unemployment rates and economic growth. So, no, the, the economy is doing fine. Um, I personally think it is unlikely we'll have a recession. Very unlikely we'll have a hard landing. But we'll see. But the odds are clearly in favour of soft landing. I think the Fed's done a great job. Now, for you, mm. you've told me before <laughs> that you would look to teach in your post-life at Morgan Stanley, in your life after Morgan Stanley. I want to ask you about that for a moment because there is a lot of turmoil on college campuses these days. <clears throat> Do you think you'd ever take a bigger role at a university given all the political pressures and donor activism that you're seeing? Well, I'm joining, uh, I have been the chair of Columbia Business School for many years, several with Henry Kravis as my co-chair and now uh, chair of the school. I'm uh, looking to get more involved at Columbia University uh, in the coming months. And I, I, I think that'd be great to do. I think, you know, the, the importance of high quality education for a well-functioning society is profound. It's obvious. So, yeah, I want to be part of that. And, and obviously universities, it's, this is not the first time universities have been hotbeds of dissent and turmoil. Uh, my whole life they've been that from when I went to university in Australia in the 1970s. So that doesn't, that doesn't bother me. Um, but it's important that people are able to have dialogue and discussion on campus uh, without intimidation and expressing their rights for free speech. What is the next big ambition for James Gorman? You mean today or? <laughs> no, I, I um, internally at Morgan Stanley is to help TED and to help with our clients around the world. I have a, a, a very large client network that I've built up over a long career and I think I can help our bankers and and others in that regard. Um, for me personally, it's to live in a little bit of a world of unknown. For my whole life, I've kind of known what the next steps are. As you mentioned, I've, I've joined one public company, will be joining one public company board, Disney. I'll be getting more involved at Columbia University uh, the months ahead, and then I'll take it from there. So I don't, I, you know, I want, I want balance in my life. Uh, I've loved being CEO. It's a phenomenal uh, company. I'm so proud of my colleagues here. Uh, the job that they've done. This isn't a one-person show. It's thousands of people who are really talented doing the right thing. And ultimately, it's the values of the organization, which is what drives it. So that's, that's what I'm most proud of. And for me personally, um, we'll find out. Well, James, thank you for your time, your sure. first interview in your new role. Uh, that's James Gorman, executive chairman now of Morgan Stanley for Bloomberg Television and Radio. Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, unlocking the power of Thinkorswim, the award-winning trading platforms loaded with features that let you dive deeper into the market. Visualize your trades in a new light on Thinkorswim desktop with robust charting and analysis tools, all while you uncover new opportunities with up-to-the-minute market news and insights. Thinkorswim is available on desktop, web, and mobile to meet you where you are. It's built by the trading obsessed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. 
Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. One job I would not want is to be the head of a college or university these days or any leadership position in an academic institution. It is, I've seen it firsthand serving on the board of Duke's Business School. It is a tough job, and that's even before what's happened over the last uh, several weeks at Harvard and Penn and some other uh, places of higher education. So let's get the latest there. Janet Lauren uh, joins us, uh, higher education finance reporter for Bloomberg News. She's been on top of this with some of the top reporting out there. So Janet, you know, we had the president of Penn step down. Now Claudine Gay of Harvard has stepped down. The pressure is just brutal here. The issues are visceral for a lot of people. How is this going to play out, do you think? Well, don't forget, a couple of months ago, we had the president of Stanford step oh, down. Oh, that's right. Yep. So um, so I guess the, the next focus is on the board, the Harvard Cor- Corporation. It had been 12 members. Now, with uh, Claudine Gay's resignation, it's 11 members. Uh, they ha- There have been calls for them to step down, um, that they ran a very flawed search. And why didn't they figure out what was going on with her scholarship? Supposedly, it had been out there for a while. And uh, the question is, will they continue to serve? Penny Pritzker, the former Commerce Secretary, is the chair of that board. And who's going to want the job as president? I mean, of course, it's the most prestigious in the world academically. But uh, as we were just talking about, it comes with so many challenges, so many Mm. constituencies. And in in my story today, one of uh, very esteemed Professor Avi Loeb talked about, you know, two extremely important things are raising money, which we saw constrained, and dealing with Washington. You can't forget that uh, the federal government is one of Harvard and many universities' largest donors. 11% of Harvard's revenue last year came from the federal government. Yes. I didn't know that. And that doesn't even include federal student loans. Harvard is extremely generous with its undergraduates for financial aid, but its graduate students, they borrowed $100 million from the government last year. You know, look at the price tag of Harvard Law School, Harvard Business School, and you know, Harvard has to keep its pristine reputation if those students want jobs that are going to pay to service that debt. It had never been a consideration. No one would ever think of that before. So is the underlying issue, I don't even know how to approach this, is the underlying issue for some um, observers of higher education just the, I guess, the liberal bent of higher education and administrations and leadership in higher education, which has always been, I guess, an issue, but is it just coming to the fore now because of what we've seen at Penn and Harvard and other places? Well, I think in the last couple of years, the objective of DEI has been to be more inclusive, of course. Yep. Um, and critics have saying it's just gone way too far. Okay. Um, looking at ideology, is that how decisions are made? Are you, are you truly picking the best candidates? And this really came to the forefront, especially after the Hamas war on yep. Israel. And uh, you know, Bill Ackman had an extremely thoughtful post today um, yes. looking at that. Um, but the question is, where do you go from here, especially with these searches, as we were just talking about? There, the universities who are looking for new presidents, Harvard, Stanford, Penn, 
Yale, their wow. their longtime yep. um, president has resigned. But don't forget Berkeley also and UCLA. UCLA's president has been the chancellor has been there for quite a long time, so it's a it's it's a refresh. And a lot of these um, presidents are are new in their job or had been um, yep. Harvard and Penn, um, because a whole host of presidents retired after COVID. You know they just had yep. this extremely difficult time, and and you know they had new leaders in, and unfortunately at a, at not such a great time. Bill Ackman today, uh, report, uh, Bloomberg's reporting. Bill Ackman says Harvard board should go for protecting uh, Claudine Gay. I mean, that seems, I, I don't know if it seems extreme, but it's certainly a bold call for Mr. Ackman, which he was very voice, uh, very outspoken about that Claudine Gay should step down. Well, we saw right after Penn's president, Liz McGill, stepped down, the board chair, mm -hmm. uh, Scott Bach, yep. know, within, within a few hours, had stepped down himself. All right, so I guess we could see something there. So, I mean, and one of the things that, you know, that was surprising to me is Harvard announced that their, I guess, uh, applications were down. Yes, they 17 were down by 17%. That says something. Yes, and, it, you know, it's not the anti-Semitism, all these videos that you'd seen. You know, we don't know the full reason. They didn't really tell us any anything. It could have been for a lot of reasons. Remember, this was the first application cycle since the Supreme Court decision that um, eliminated race as a factor in applications. They had, um, you know, more essays. But, you know, it's, it's hard to tell. But that, for Harvard, um, which is always encouraging people to apply, you know, we wrote about this many years ago. They're always mailing letters to yep. encourage kids to apply. Um, you know, it, it was quite shocking for them because everybody else seemed to be up. I tell you, this what a time to be a higher education reporter because it really feels like this is a seminal moment in higher education in this country. Is it? Is that the feeling from your sources or is this something that's just a news cycle that will kind of blow over? No, I don't think anybody would have ever expected this. You know, you talk about um, Harvard's president, you know, the shortest tenure yep. in its 400 plus year <laughs> history and you know you've got to think that there's been a lot of tum um, tumultuous situations at that place for 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 so many years but yeah it is and you know we're not even talking about student loans too yeah you know we have uh, an, an issue there you know we've talked about before graduate school loans are yep. about to overtake you know the annual um, distributions more than more than undergraduate loans and people are having trouble paying those off so there's just a tremendous amount of distrust of higher education these days and it's expensive yeah and I, it, it really is and uh, you think about the stories that come out from higher education uh, it's it's either a story about the high cost and 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 you know just it's too expensive the affordability or lack of affordability of higher education or it's a story about how well how big their endowments are or huge gifts being made to these schools it's really an odd economic model that just doesn't if you just were to look at it it doesn't make sense it doesn't and you know we we saw the movie boys in the boat uh the other day and, and you look at the university of washington and during the depression and what higher education did for people and it, it didn't cost a, a huge amount and yep. it, it hadn't cost a huge amount until much recently you know your your state schools should be affordable for people to go to to better themselves and you know it, there's some really tough questions that need to be asked and and the price keeps continuing to to rise and of course if you're at harvard yale princeton and your family is uh below a certain income it's going to be free for you yeah um but there's the middle that you know, we'll have to pay for it or take out loans. I mean, what is the thinking? Is is there a consensus thinking as to what the problem is about 
uh, the affordability or lack thereof of higher education because it it's just the price of it has well exceeded inflation for so long that it just to a financial person looking at it says this economic model is wrong or it's 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 not efficient my goodness they've been saying this for 25 years yep. and it just keeps going up and you have people who will pay it they'll borrow for it but i don't know at some point you know we've seen a few small colleges that are closing yep the pandemic money is gone you know there's a lot of constraints and you know we'll see the the government you know student loans are an entitlement yep so i mean so as it relates going back to you know harvard and penn and all these other jobs is there a thought as to who might go for these jobs? It seems to me, I can't imagine if, if you're not somebody, if you're someone outside of academia, you would not aspire to this and go through that kind of rigor. It would, it would, I would guess it would be the dean of your you know, arts and sciences school would just kind of slide up into the next level because presumably they've been vetted to some degree. Well, uh, that's what we, we would have thought at Harvard. Well, if you look at um, Rick Levin was the president of Yale for 20 years, and he, um, so many of his provosts went on to, to lead great universities, yep. MIT, um, just a whole bunch. Um, and he uh, was sort of like the great trainer for university presidents. Mm. Um, I don't know how much that is existing today. Um, the provost at um, Harvard is, is stepping in, but I don't think we've seen a provost take that job in quite a long time. Um, but you know, they're still quite prestigious jobs, but Harvard has almost a $6 billion budget. That's like a, a company. Sure. And it's very complicated, very varied sources of revenue. Um, so, you know, we'll see. Who, yeah. But people are going to be clamoring for all of these jobs. Yeah, but it's, I guess it would just be a question as when we'll follow your, your reporting going forward about, you know, what this means for higher education in general. Will this cause itself to kind of really look at itself again and think about its ideologies, its economic model, all those things? Well, but keep in mind that very few people go to schools like Harvard, yep. Yale, Princeton. You know, the vast majority of people in this country uh, go to large state yep. public schools. Yep. Yep, two of my offspring uh, did that as well. So, um, and that's a, a good value, a good opportunity too, but they have their challenges as well. Janet Lauren, thank you so much for joining us. Janet Lauren uh, and her daughter joining us today. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Over the last 25, 30 years of my career on Wall Street, one of the explosive areas has just been the growth of hedge funds, alternative investments. And the way to play that on the sell side is through the prime brokerage business. Uh, it's a good business. It's a profitable business, but it is a risky business. And we've seen some firms kind of pull back a little bit, um, you know, based upon their risk profile. But if you're in it and you're good, uh, it's a good profit business. Our next guest is certainly in that camp, Mark Alderati. He's a global head of prime services at Jefferies, one of those firms that's really committed to that business. Uh, Mark, thanks for joining us here in studio. Um, talk to us about the prime brokerage business. How's it been over the last two to three years on the street? Sure. Thanks, Paul. Um, thanks for having me. So the prime brokerage business has really been um, one that's been expanding there's a lot of growth uh it's kind of a necessary part of the hedge fund or alternative business in terms of uh, offering up leverage helping folks cover shorts and then all these sort of operational infrastructure that goes with it 
Um, you could argue that the operational infrastructure has kind of table stakes and been normalized, but as you've seen how uh, firms have come out of this business, others have been uh, scaling back a little bit, but some are going into it a little bit more forcefully. It is a capital intensive business. As you mentioned, there is a risk to it. It's effectively a lending risk. Yep. Um, so it's, it's been good and it's been growing. Now, you know, back in my day, as it were, I mean, if I had two or three good years trading bonds or stocks or currencies, I could literally walk out the door, knock on your door or some other prime broker and say, hey, raise me 500 million or a billion or $2 billion and I'd go hang my shingle out and take all the trading profits. Does that even happen anymore? So I think that would be an exception to the rule. If okay. you come from a uh, very well-pedigreed manager and you spin out and you get backing from that manager, it's a much more plausible outcome. But I think one of the differences today is that we see these multi-manager platforms that really have come into their own in the last you know, few years. So if you were going to spin out rather than go out on your own, okay. you may want to join one of these platforms instead. So that kind of goes to the consolidation of this industry. It seems like... You know, the mom and pop, the standalone hedge fund person with two or three billion, those are kind of a dinosaur. It seems like it's all Citadel, Millennium. You got to go into these big platforms. And that's not as fun, though, is it? Well, I, I can't speak to the uh, <laughs> how, how much fun it is or not. But I will say that uh, it's an easier entry if you want to not manage your own business, but get closer to managing your own business. Um, in other words, it takes care of all the infrastructure needs. It takes care of the capital raise. And you can focus on probably what you do best, which is manage people's money. You know, when I left the sell side late 2004, I looked long and hard because that's what sell side analysts, you leave, you go to a hedge fund, long, short equity. I, based upon my analysis, and I said, this game's played out, long, short equity. It's, there's no alpha left. It's, plus, it's a young person's game. I don't know, but money's still flocking into hedge funds, isn't it? Talk to us about kind of funds flows over the last several years. Yeah, I mean, they've, they've had ups and downs. Uh, 23 wasn't the best year ever, but it was a good year. What we've seen from our seat and our client base, um, half of that money went to funds that are a little bit more established, meaning have been around five years plus. About 25% of the money went to folks between three and five years, and then the other 25% went to the uh, what we call emerging manager space. Um, but I think there's a lot more specialists today. So you're like a healthcare specialist, you're a mm -hmm. TMT specialist. And when the allocators are looking where to put their money, they're making those decisions as to what market or what segment of the market would make most sense for them. So what are some of the, uh, where is some of the money going these days? Well, without getting into specific names, but- S Strategies. You, well, so a lot's going, and most of it, as you mentioned, is going into these multi-manager platforms. Okay. Away from that, again, our perspective may be a little bit different because we do have, uh, you know, Jeffries obviously has a large healthcare banking business, trading right. business. So we do have a fair amount of healthcare funds on the platform, and they've done pretty well in terms of the capital raise this past year. So, I mean, what are, what are the big funds doing? Like, what's Stevie Cohen doing? What are the, you know, I don't know, the Ackermans? Are they raising money these days? I think, well, everybody's trying to raise money. Everybody's um, trying to raise money. And, and they're, they're successful at it with you know, varying degrees. And I think for some of the larger folks that you've mentioned, um, it's more about product expansion. I'm not talking about the fund structure per se, but it's what markets are they trading in, whether in the U.S., Europe, Asia, emerging markets. You see a, a very sort of um, wide spectrum or diversification across a lot of those. And they sort of push and pull on the levers as market opportunities arise. So what are the, I know some of the challenges, having spoken to some folks in the industry, the whole regulation reporting aspect for this business, it just seems to get more and more complex every time. How do you guys, or at a prime brokerage, how do you try to 
deal with that? Yeah, to be honest, we try to uh, um, alleviate or move some of that burden from our clients and put it on ourselves in terms of what we report, how we report. That's not going to be possible with everything going forward. So I'll just give two examples. One is the look to have potentially more transparency within the swap or synthetic or Delta One businesses. Um, And some folks obviously don't love that idea because they may be, um, you know, doing it for trading anonymity. And then two, sort of this Basel end game, which terms may may require folks to just post more capital, I mean the broker dealers to post more capital. So the rules and the regulations are going to change the playing field sort of going forward. Where does hedge fund money come from generally uh, into the space? Yeah, I mean, it's coming from uh, family offices. It's coming from fund to funds. It's coming from pensions and endowments. And, you know, I think we've seen recently where we've been focused a little bit more has been on the uh, family office space. Um, sometimes they are willing to take a little bit more risk in terms of going with an unknown uh, individual or somebody they feel they may be more alpha getting in with somebody as they start up as opposed to going with one of the more household names. But it's sometimes safer to go with a household name because everybody's in there. So when you submitted your budget to your bosses this year for 2024, what are some of the growth drivers that you kind of laid out for yeah. them? I mean, for us, we are looking to do more in the synthetic and swap space. We are looking to um, offer a little bit more across. We're pretty solid in the uh, straight sort of equity space, but looking to do a little bit more within convertible bonds, a little bit more within the fixed income space. So I think for us, we're looking to broaden our product offering. Um, and so, and we've had good traction so far. So, I mean, who are the... What's the competitive landscape here uh, of this prime business these days? Yeah, listen, there are, you know, there are five very large prime brokers. So that it's Goldman, are, Morgan, Stanley, um, B of A maybe, I don't know. No, you're, you're right. I just yeah. don't want to say competitive yeah. name, but yeah. sure, you're so absolutely the big, right. So the big, the bull yeah, tracker guys are, are all in but, there for the most part. Yes, but what could potentially change is if the capital requirements change, they may be more impacted than somebody like ourselves. And so I could see the landscape changing slightly over the next couple of years and maybe the product mix and use of balance sheet and use of capital kind of changing along with it. Yeah, because that's, uh, yeah, I mean, you guys have to deal with those regulatory risks uh, as many as much as any other industry. Mark uh, Alderati, thanks so much for joining us. Mark is a global head of prime services uh, for Jeffries, talking about the hedge fund business. They still get two and 20? Not everybody. Not everybody, okay, very good. Because I'm just like, two and 20 for what am I getting? I mean, you know, I saw some of the hedge fund results uh, for 2023 get uh, reported today. Kind of low double digit, big deal. Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, giving you even more specialized support than ever before. Like access to the trade desk, our team of passionate traders ready to tackle anything from the most complex trading questions to a simple strategy gut check. Need assistance? No problem. Get 24-7 professional answers and live help and access support by phone, email, and in-platform chat. That's how Schwab is here for you, to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. 
Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. The discussion of the day for me, media, entertainment, fun stuff. Geetha Ranganathan joins us. She's a senior analyst covering media for Bloomberg Intelligence, joining us via Zoom from our Princeton, New Jersey campus. Geetha, let's start with Disney here. The activist investors and are kind of swirling around this company. Um, the pressure seems to be building on CEO Bob Iger to, to right the ship, to get the stock moving again. What's going on at Disney? Yeah, you're absolutely right, Paul. I mean, the if you look at kind of Disney shares, they're down about 55% from their March 2021 <laughs> highs. So obviously, there's a lot that needs to be done here. Having said that, though, I, I think Bob Iger uh, obviously recognizes what needs to be done. He has kind of taken a lot of steps, whether it's restoring the dividend, whether it's, you know, kind of right-sizing content expenses, um, you know, coming up with, uh, you know, plans to reinvigorate streaming. They've, they've had almost 30% streaming pricing increases uh, they're looking to kind of get gain full ownership of, of Hulu so, so he's really juggling a lot of different balls here but you're absolutely right in terms of you know the activist investors they're obviously uh, swirling around Disney but uh, Iger this morning at least seems to be kind of shoring up his defenses with that news about uh, you know this kind of strategic um, uh, partnership with Value Act as well as Blackwells so they seem to be uh, kind of getting uh, some um, uh, you know, support yep. in, in their fight against Nelson Pels. Is there anything, I mean, you, you look at the Walt Disney Company and, and the, the cable networks led by ESPN, the theme parks, the, the film studios, all the studios they own, all the brands they own. There's so many valuable assets there that I guess if you do a sum of the parts, maybe you could say that this stock is undervalued. And I'm sure the Disney's done that in, internally. Realistically, do you think there's any big deals that Bob can do here to unlock value, whether it's sell ESPN or, or anything like that? So I think the one deal, and, and obviously this is already ongoing, is they're looking to gain full ownership of Hulu, and, and that's uh, underway right now. So we were not really sure what they're going to pay. They're, they obviously have to pay a minimum of about $9 billion for that 33% stake of Comcast. Uh, but then whether it'll go higher to about 13, 14, 15 billion, nobody really knows. In terms of other deals, I'm not really sure they want to do anything very big. We do know that they're looking to actually divest their India operations. They're they're in the process of merging it with one of the biggest uh, Indian wireless operators, which is Reliance, to create a huge media conglomerate there. Uh, so, they're, so they're really looking to kind of more trim uh, and kind of uh, streamline their operations. So I'm not I'm not necessarily sure they're going to go out and be more acquisitive. Mm. Uh, in terms of ESPN, they have clearly said that they're not looking to get rid of the asset. They're looking more for some kind of a strategic partnership. Not really sure whether that's going to be a tech giant or whether that's going to be one of the leagues. So that's a little bit of a wait and watch. 
Uh, but I think the one thing that, that the street is really looking for clarity on is what they're going to do with their linear TV assets. We know that last year, Bob Iger had kind of floated this whole idea that, you know, he's not married to, to the linear TV ecosystem. He doesn't mind getting rid of assets. But then he kind of walked that back a little bit. So again, there's a little bit of un, you know uh, uncertainty, I guess, with what happens with the linear TV assets. All right, so that kind of goes to the next question, which is kind of the, the, the streaming business, this, the pivot from uh, you know, broadcasting cable television channels over your, your cable system to a streaming model. Um, Netflix makes a lot of money doing it, but nobody else really does. What's, what are we going to see in 2024 with the streaming business from the big media companies? Yeah, absolutely right. Nobody else other than Netflix right now is making money in streaming. But the new mantra in streaming is is less bad as good. So as long as all of these companies have lower streaming losses, even that is being viewed as a positive sign by investors. So in, in the case of Disney, for instance, uh, in, in 2022, they had over $4 billion that they lost in their streaming business. They really kind of pared that down pretty significantly in 2023 to about $2.5 billion. We think it could go down even further, maybe just about 750 million or 800 million in 2024. So they are looking to, you know, all of these companies, Disney included, are looking to break even on their streaming businesses. Of course, it's going to be a very, very long road for them to kind of get to the profitability levels that Netflix has achieved. Because if you look at Netflix operating margins right now in their streaming business, it's about 22, 23%. And they're looking, they're really on a path to get to that 30% margin level. Yeah, that's, uh, boy, that's kind of where uh, the media companies used to be uh, back in the day. So, all right, another theme for 2024, uh, as I read your research and, and see some other uh, stuff out there on the street, is maybe some M&A uh, in this industry. Is this industry maybe needs to consolidate because, you know, the profitability isn't what it used to be. And it's tough to be a standalone company if you're not really big, uh, like a Disney, uh, like a Netflix. How do you think that might play out? Yeah, we've already seen a lot of rumblings, uh, you know, Paul, to that effect. So we've had, you know, just at the end of last year, we had this whole news about maybe Warner Brothers, Discovery and, and Paramount kind of coming together. And then that's sparking a, a huge discussion about whether, you know, maybe Comcast should also be in the fray for some of these assets. I think the real problem and I think that what, what the street is having a real hard time kind of grappling with is, you know, the, the debt levels of some of these companies. So if you kind of look at Warner Brothers and, and Paramount, the reason that they pro probably will not like that deal is one is, of course, you have very, very heavy linear TV exposure. And remember, linear TV, yep. of course, is in secular decline because you're having about 10% uh, cord cutting mm -hmm. of people canceling their pay TV subscriptions. But again, if you look at that Warner Brothers Discovery and Paramount combination, that's $60 billion in debt. Uh, and, and nobody kind of really likes that. Um, <laughs> So, you know, uh, I, I don't I don't really know how it's all kind of going to shake out. Of course, I think M&A is going to be the top hot topic or the hottest topic for 2024, but not really sure if any deal necessarily makes sense just because of that very, very heavy linear TV exposure. And for, for years, you know, media investors and analysts have been wondering when and if uh, a tech company, whether it's an Amazon, an Apple, somebody, a, a Google, somebody really big with those limitless pockets will come in and make a big investment in the media and entertainment business. We really haven't seen that too much here. Any reason to think this year will be different? I don't think so, Paul. I think if at all, it'll be even harder this year. I mean, this is a presidential year. We're obviously going to see a lot more of, you know, the antitrust and a lot more of, you know, the regulatory concerns kind of resurface. And I think any of these big tech giants are going to be very, very careful uh, not to kind of rub the regulators the wrong way. So it's, it's very hard for us to see them kind of make at least any huge splashy acquisition.
Um, the movie business. Are people going to the theaters anymore, Geetha? How's that business kind of <laughs> behaving now post-pandemic? Yeah, that's a great question. Actually, we've seen, you know, obviously there was both this demand problem and the supply problem that was kind of created by the pandemic. We've actually seen the demand kind of come back pretty pretty nicely, I would say, through 2023. Uh, just to kind of put some numbers around it, we saw $9 billion at the domestic box office. That is still $2 billion shy of pre-pandemic levels, mm. but it's still almost 300% above, you know, like, 2020 when kind of the movie business was completely shut down. So we've kind of seen some resilience. Uh, that said, uh, you know, we had another shock to the to the whole, uh, I think, entertainment world in 2023 after the pandemic, which was really the, the writer's strike as well as the actor's strike. And that is going to have some ramifications for the box office in 2024 because we've seen multiple movies, multiple tent poles actually getting pushed out to 2025, whether, you know, it's Mission Impossible, whether it's the new Snow White movie, Captain America, the new, you know, uh, a Spider-Verse movie from Sony. All of these, you know, will, will almost shave off about one to two billion dollars of box office. Office. So right now we're looking at a much weaker uh, kind of box office outlook for 2024. All right. Uh, very good. Geetha Ranganathan, thank you for joining us, as always, with a breakdown of what's happening in the global media and entertainment space. Lots of big themes here uh, for that. So Geetha Ranganathan, Senior Media Analyst, Bloomberg Intelligence, uh, reporting from uh, Princeton there with her uh, research. And you can find that at BIGO for Bloomberg Intelligence. BIGO on the terminal will get you all the Bloomberg Intelligence uh, research, uh, some of the best equity credit policy research uh, for equities, bond. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Hurd the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.